The thing that I love about Session Based is it just amplifies the part that I would say matters the most, which is really like bug hunting, right? There's a lot of things that we do as testers, um, as product evaluators, as, as just kind of like quality assurance, double checkers. The idea behind Sessions is that it's really difficult to be sufficiently thorough ahead of time, you know, before you actually have the product in your hands. Hi, I'm Eden Fulgo, and you're listening to How It's Tested, a monthly series where we discuss great products, how they're tested, and other stories from the testing community, featuring interviews with tech leaders, founders, testing experts, and creators. How It's Tested is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at TeamMobot. That's T-E-A-M-M-O-B-O-T. Today, we'll be chatting with Jacob Stevens, a storied testing expert with over 15 years of testing and QA leadership experience. Hey, Jacob. Thank you so much for joining me here on the How It's Tested podcast. How's it going? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. I really love this idea. I'm really glad to be a part of it. Yeah, I really love having conversations with testing professionals like you because you have a lot of great experience. I I remember when I was looking at your profile earlier, just being really impressed by the diverse number of industries, tech stacks, testing tools that you've touched on in your career. And so really excited for a, a deep conversation today. Okay, cool. Well, thanks. I'm definitely flattered about that. It's a bit serendipitous. It's not necessarily by design. I think it does come with the territory a little bit if you work for uh, like a managed service firm, as I did, or maybe like a consulting firm, or, um, you know, if uh, some people actually prefer the life of a contractor and kind of trying new things as they, as they kind of bounce around. And so it just kind of grew organically, though, for me. Yeah. Just for some of our audience members to get to know you a little bit better, you know, would love to hear kind of in in your words, uh, you know, what your career and your trajectory in QA and testing has been like, Um, because you've been in the industry for 20 plus years. Um, You know, you've been an individual contributor, you've been a manager on different teams. And, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, the way that the world saw products, the way we saw mobile versus web and testing is you know, very different uh, now than it was back then, mm-hmm. you know, would love for you to give us a brief overview of kind of like where your career has taken you so far and kind of what you're looking for next as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, so I, I kind of fell into it. I got into video game testing because I actually had a background in audio engineering. And so um, I started testing audio video codecs at, at Microsoft after um, testing video games and I don't know. I guess I was a little bit aimless kind of back then, but I certainly gravitated to the inquisitive nature of testing. It's all kind of like falsifying hypotheses and and stuff. And I'm definitely kind of one of those types of of nerds. If you don't mind a really brief story, actually, after a few years of just kind of doing that as a test engineer, and I went and, you know, picked up some .NET certifications to, you know, I thought maybe I'd move into application development and such. So I had some of the um, technical coding skills as well at that time. But I really kind of found myself very discouraged 
I was probably a four to five year professional and really kind of thinking, what is next for me? And I tell you, the the day that I just kind of resolved where I was like, you know, testing is like this interesting thing, but I think it's not really like the career because there's so much expectation, you know, that I'll move on into development. And I really didn't have the same focus. You know, it was kind of an orthogonal skill set, I think, of testers, even though it's also a very common, like, uh, career stepping stone for many people, and that's perfectly appropriate. Just wasn't for me. So, I like, this kind of, you know, darkest hour moment, I was, like, unemployed, and I was like, well, I'm going to have to figure out my next step, but I have to continue to bring in income, so let me just, you know, send out my resume one more time. I saw a job, applied for it. The dude calls me like within four minutes. Um, so he turned into my mentor. His name is John Bach. Um, his brother, James, is a fairly well-known entity in the testing world. Um, together, they developed like session-based test management methodology. And like the whole profession just came alive for me at that time. And so I guess maybe the, the takeaway from that for people is, is if you feel like you're not progressing as rapidly as, as you would like to, or there's some gaps that are kind of impeding your ability to find places where you're going to fit really well. And then I guess it's kind of one of those like, don't give up things because it's definitely uh, was a pivotal moment for obviously like my life, not just uh, my testing career. Yeah. For the folks who aren't familiar, like what is session-based testing as a methodology? Excellent. So it really, the thing that I love about session-based is it just amplifies the part that I would say matters the most, which is really like bug hunting, right? There's a lot of things that we do as testers, um, as product evaluators, as, as just kind of like um, quality assurance, double checkers. There's kind of a quality gating process that goes on at some organizations, and you may be a part of that. The planning effort and everything um, can be very, very robust. I mean, if you're testing a medical device, and you, know, you can't kill anybody. You've got some legal liability, so you have to be very robust and very, very thorough and very forward-thinking. Well, the idea behind sessions is that it's really difficult to be sufficiently thorough ahead of time, you know, before you actually have the product in your hands. So it's kind of a way to do rapid testing, rapid results, and then it's time boxed, right? So that's why it's session-based test management. So the idea would be like, you might just do a one-hour session, maybe even a 30-minute session or 90 minutes or above like 180. And that's really kind of like the extent of session-based testing. And so rather than having a test case, you would actually have a charter you know, say like, I, I have not used Mobot as a, as a product yet, but let's just say, for example, okay, I, as, a, as the charter idea is I'm going to itemize all of the different user types that have been identified. And each one of those, I'm going to assume the role of that user. And I'm going to make sure that um, all authentication is fine. I'm going to sign up and register. I'm going to uh, sign in, sign out, sign in from multiple devices um, I'm going to let my authentication time out, you know, forget my password, things of that nature. I'm going to stop paying <laughs> and then see what happens, right? And then, and then you just go and do it. So it's really like, I would say, unguided testing, but I don't want that to sound, you know, as undisciplined as it might to some people. It's really just about 
the fact that even if you're at a very robust organization, mature organization, just running through a couple hundred test cases, the reality is you've probably performed checks or evaluations or tests of the product, you know, potentially numbering into the thousands by the time you run through 200. So it's really kind of a, a way to have like a white, lightweight footprint of your of your labor from from day to day where you're not spending so much time doing all this pre-planning, but you're going to kind of do it on the fly. But of course that can meander too far. So then we time box it. And then there's a debriefing usually with a lead or a product owner or something. And then you come up and um, identify some additional charters and then get back going. So it's like a very formalized uh, structure around exploratory testing. Yeah. It's interesting because we encounter that question a lot at Mobot as well. And in, in my day-to-day and talking to our customers is like, when is a good time to do regression test cases where you uh, have these very regimented, very clearly defined, uh, you know, this checklist that you're running through. But then when is it a good time to do kind of what you're describing of exploratory testing and session-based testing, um, where you're really empathizing with the perspective of the user and really thinking about what their interaction and their user experience is like going through a particular product. Um, And there is definitely, I think, a time and place for both types of testing. And I'm curious, like, in your experience, where do you feel like the regression test cases, like banging the same, you know, sign in, sign out, go through an authentication flow, the same thing over and over again. When is a good time to use regression, sort of traditional regression testing? And when do you normally kind of deploy more session-based testing strategies? Oh, so great question. I mean, of course, uh, it sounds like a cop-out answer to say, well, it depends and kind of cite the context. But I think two of the parameters that really help to drive that a lot are going to be uh, the maturity of the product. But then also maybe the number one thing really is just going to be the release cycle. And, you know, I suppose that even kind of lends towards your your methodology, agile versus waterfall, things of that nature. But um, if you're kind of really adept and and agile or safe, then you might be, if you're a web application, you might be putting something out, you know, potentially every single week. Uh, I think places like Amazon, they can uh, release on demand, you know, when they've got the microservice architecture and there's all these individualized components and they go through their whole vetting process and deployment quality process. And then once it's ready, then they can even be releasing, you know, multiple times a day, even if you're, if you're Facebook or Amazon. So that's going to have a lot to do with it. And I, you know, so as a manager, I have always kind of tied it into the whole deployment process, if that makes any sense. So from there, I guess we, the, the, if we want to get more specific, then it's like what kind of details. Uh, you had mentioned some interest about the mobile application work that I was most recently doing as a senior director of mobile application development. So if you don't mind, I can kind of use that as a contrasting uh, example? Yeah, I would love to. Okay, good. So it it was mobile application development, but what makes it a little bit unique is it was a white label program. So this was for SpringBig last year, and uh, SpringBig is a marketed automation and a kind of a CRM platform for consumers uh, based on loyalty management, right, where they earn points and then they get rewards for being loyal to to your retail outlet. And we just happen to uh, specialize in cannabis for uh, a few reasons that are not important here. And so 
the thing about having a white label program is ostensibly the code base is not going to change nearly as much. And therefore, um, you got to figure that the risk is not going to be quite as palpable. And so you're going to have some options on there. And so the question about regression in that sense was, you know, a lot of people will just stick to like, what's the core functionality? What are some of the most important defects that we cannot allow to regress, which is kind of where the term comes from, right? And things of that nature. So we had that. And what I recognized is when we're doing that over and over and over again, and the code base is not changing very much, we're really not doing very much to mitigate risk at all. And it's kind of a a reasonably heavy effort, you know, kind of high cost to do that repeatedly, even when we've, you know, augmented our manual testers, quote unquote, you know, with tools such as uh, Postman and the collection runners where you can hit a whole bunch of APIs and make sure that all the return values are correct and and all the, the expected failures are correct. It's still kind of a heavy lift. And so I don't like that those things would get stale. So what I did is look through our TCM and I would sort by the most recent result. And so we had about 14,000 test cases. They're in the TCM. And so the reality is we'll be testing new features. There's a lot of exploratory testing going on there, and those things will get hit. And then with regression just being so uh, stale and just recursing through the same suite, you know, those 14,000, it's almost like it's almost like useless. We may as well throw it away if we're not going to hit that at least, you know, like once a year or something. Like I recognize the risk level isn't necessarily there, but what do we do? So I came up with kind of three categories for our regression cycle. We'd have kind of like the core and that's going to hit like every single time. And then we would have release specific cases. And and, oh, and by the way, this applied to, this was somewhat holistic as an approach because we had a web platform that the mobile apps were serving. And we also had web clients as well. So, you know, architecturally nowadays, a lot of front-end frameworks are going to be, say, like with Flutter, yeah, you're going to write a bunch of mobile applications, but you can have the web app, the web client as well. And so that's what we had. So you've got a core suite, then you've got something release specific depending on what's going out the door on the web platform or the mobile side if there's a new feature or maybe like the microservice architecture that's supporting it all. And then, like I said, those old cases that had the last run. Like it was a little bit too much to do everything. So what I did is I kind of had like two cycles. So we'd have the core suite and we'd do that for a month or two and then we'd have just a quick meeting and kind of go through some things like what's kind of in the middle is still important. It's a good regression case, but we're not hitting it enough. And let's kind of cycle those through. So we tried to refresh like a third of the, of the test cases, you know, every couple of months. And then same thing with like the oldest ones. It's like, okay, what are, what are the oldest 50 that just no one has ever touched? And if they're not valid, then test it and make sure it's not valid and then delete or deprecate that test case. Right. And then, the next time we'd have a new 50 because those are no longer at the bottom. So anyway, I know that hopefully was not too convoluted or hard to follow for the audience, but uh, that's what we did. I think that's a really healthy and strategic approach to testing. And this is something that like we encounter a lot at Mobot as well, is often when we engage with engineering teams or QA or product teams, they are just like, yeah, we've, you know, like you were saying, 1,400 test cases, and it's not worth it unless you test everything. Um, but then when you actually sort of drill into, you know, intellectually, like, 
okay, what are the features that make the most money, that generate the most revenue, or they result in the highest user conversions, or just you know it's the most highest trafficked parts of your application, or it's the most business critical, it's the most regulated part, if it's a financial services application, or it's a digital health or a medical device, like you were saying. I think you really have to take a thoughtful approach to QA. Of course, if everyone had all the time and money in the world, we would test everything all the time. You would get a robot to test everything all the time. But I think that's actually a really thoughtful point is you kind of have to, you have to think through like, why are you testing this thing? Why does this particular use case, this test case matter? And that's also where human testing and manual testing continues to play a role is because even with all the regression test cases in the world, you're not going to be able to cover all of the scenarios that a human would do. There's just too much mm-hmm. creativity and ingenuity in that part of the exploratory session-based testing process that we should continue to capture. And, and a good, healthy QA team is going to use a combination of automated and manual testing tools. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, you know, Eden, you must be very, obviously you have to be very familiar with the fact that there's there's constantly this question of how much test coverage is sufficient. It's very difficult to quantify it, but I think maybe the biggest complication is outside of us, nobody else cares. They just want to know when is it done? You know, call it done. Like it's your responsibility. If you miss something, it's on you. So you tell me if you're done. If you're not done, I'll give you more time. But then, you know, the clock is ticking and they're getting impatient. And so managing that, you know, managing the expectations and to anyone who actually kind of wants to understand why that must be substantiated, it's good to, to sort of evangelize that out so that people understand. But, but for the most part, they don't. And so whether it's a, an individual exploratory test session or an individual test case or just managing it, you know, at the, um, at the managerial level, It's just this thing that we constantly have to deal with. Yeah. I guess in your experience, given all of the different mobile apps that you were helping um, to oversee and kind of make sure that um, at Spring Big that you were able to sort of ship everything on time, I'm curious, all of these different white label mobile apps, were they all on the same release schedule? Did you test all of them every time it went uh, out the door or how does that work? No, they were not. So, okay, so it's a bit interesting. I Here we get into some of the concepts of customer satisfaction management, I think. And actually, if you don't mind, I think that is one of the brilliant parts of Mobot's model is that it's not just a bunch of robots doing automated testing for you, but you actually, we as a client of Mobot would get uh, a CSM. So I think that's fantastic because, you know, as my career has has kind of grown and progressed, I've just interfaced with whoever the customer proxies are more and more and more, which I think as a, as a QA guy, as a tester, that's certainly very healthy all the way down to every single individual that might be assigned to a team. But certainly at the management level, I just think it's absolutely imperative. And so with Spring Big, uh, we had CSMs for our clients and then we had product owners in kind of a traditional agile quasi scrum kind of a situation, right? So who's the one who makes the decisions, the product decisions? Well, that's the product owner or the product manager, whatever you want to call that uh, individual. And they make those decisions. And as long as they sign off, you know, basically it's kind of like a, a multi-partner 
uh, checklist, you know, test signs off, product signs off, and then the deployment team signs off because we've verified that the PRs have been merged and there's no conflicts and all of the, um, you know, the unit tests are still green, all the tests in the pipeline are still green, the extended end-to-end tests in the pipeline are green, and therefore... There's a number of other things like, hey, did we change database schema? Do we need to notify anybody? Is this safe to deploy like we would deploy in the morning when hardly anybody was using the product? But there are some items that were just that much more risky and we'd actually kind of, you know, do that at like two or three in the morning and have people kind of like on call and, and do that. And just be prepared to roll back as they monitor things through their AWS dashboard and all those kind of things. Okay, so... It ended up being driven by CSMs more than a product owner. So what we would do, I mean, we ultimately had a really big backlog of excited customers that were waiting for their own individual branded app. These were uh, were cannabis retailers. Um, I think, unfortunately, before I got involved, uh, we as an organization began to sell it before it was really ready. But there was a lot of excitement um, if I had to do things over again, I think maybe the biggest mistake I probably ever made was not just kind of running it up the flagpole and saying, look, can we find a way to kind of compensate our, our customers and let them know that, like, let's unrelease this. Let's give ourselves a month or three to really get on solid footing. Um, but otherwise, we're just behind the eight ball on a constant basis, which is no fun for anybody. But also strikingly common, right? So we're all used to it. So we've all kind of run that way. So we continually added features and re, uh, re-architected and refactored and extended the code base that would build a, a white label program, and then we would have their individual assets for the branding. But those were almost just like individual mini projects where there was, yeah, less actual work to go into it, less risk that's, that's legitimate, um, but it was still going to be a heavy lift because there was going to be uh, dozens of them, and we had to manage this divergence of expectation and 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 needs, and uh, it became very important to have a very intimate relationship with all the CSMs because if we allow every customer to really kind of take ownership of their app, which is fairly fully reasonable for them to expect, then you know we would be doing ourselves an immense disservice because now it's just going to be divergent features, divergent versioning, and it would be really bad. So anyway, I'm trying to pull that back into what that meant for quality, but really it was that was why we had to get so nuanced with our regression cycles is because we have one to three that are about to go out the door, and of course that really, if they go out the door, that's more controlled by Apple and, uh, and Android than, than us, and, and so... From there, it ended up being kind of more like a traditional release process of, of going through everything. Anyway, so I hope that kind of answers the question. I see. So even though there's over 100 of white label apps in the portfolio, you were sort of covering like two or three major ones every single sprint um, and trying to make make sure that those apps were ready for release is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. And so we had some versioning of the white label architecture. So once those were out the door and customers were using them and we knew that we had to continue to support it in a way that at least where you know we weren't going to be breaking it, 
as we were making changes to the microservices and to the web application and stuff, that was you know a whole nother piece of that multi-dimensional regression suite that we had to do on a on a regular basis. What was the ratio of sort of like automation to manual testing for uh, these white label apps that you were supporting? Like, did you guys have? I, I think I I saw that you had mentioned the. the uh, the apps were React Native. So does that mean you were using a test framework like Detox or have you played with a bunch of different ones? Let's see. So we had Appium, but honestly, our automation was m- way more robust on the web application side with, with Cypress. And so that was probably going to be another uh, step. So I'm, I'm no longer there with Spring, but we had to restructure and, you know, the, the economy's down for everyone. So it is what it is, but yeah. So I've used Appium before at a couple of uh, locations. I like to pair it with TestNG because of the test parameterization capabilities that TestNG had, and so I kind of have similar designs here at Spring Big for our regression suite. But really, it was just it was just very rudimentary, just like sign on, do a couple of things, make sure a couple of pages were there. It was just at the beginning uh, stages when I took off, so I'm not sure where they're going to take it from here. Yeah, it sounds like and that's a pretty normal experience that at least we've seen in when we talk to different engineering teams and testing teams that you know that that we encounter is that there's an intention to build out test automation. Um, you know, there are these great frameworks out there, but the reality is that the tech stack is complicated. It's not as straightforward as with web apps, and so there is sort of a, a manual testing effort that's you know, supplementing or just doing most of the testing until the automation is up and running. And I guess I'm curious from your perspective, since throughout your career, you've built and automated testing for web and mobile apps, like what is it in particular that makes mobile so much more challenging than, than web automation? Uh, good question. I mean, I guess the first thing off the top of my head is the reality is most of your scenarios have these valid permutations, which pretty frequently ignored, that I know because looking through the spec sheet and stuff on Mobot, that I know that you guys are pretty well built for this stuff. So push notifications popping up, app switching, right? Taking the app to the background and, and restoring it. You're dealing with not only two platforms, which that's not a major problem, to be honest, but you're just dealing with a... At a scenario level, every scenario is is a user on a phone. And so everyone is just so adept at their own way of interacting with their phone, right? And um, some people might be heavy users of Siri and the voice commands and, and things of that nature. So there's like, you can look at the core functionality, you can look at the core use cases of an app and its features and how well it behaves but it's just not able to be as isolated as, you know, like a web app or a desktop app. I mean, with a desktop app and stuff, it's like, okay, the operating system has multi-threading. You can kind of like task switch back and forth. And if anything goes really kind of weird there, for the most part, I think there's a reasonable presumption that like, it's not our fault, it's not our problem. You know, let Microsoft and Apple worry about those things. But I think we've all seen mobile apps get really weird in those scenarios. And so I think that it's you, you can't shed the responsibility in the same way on the mobile platform. For sure. 
And so it sounds like what has ended up happening is when you were managing, you know, teams of people on on your testing team to kind of work against some of these challenges, you had to pretty much build a, a it sounds like a very robust session-based or manual testing strategy to, to account for all these different scenarios. How did you sort of organize your teams effectively to make sure that every tester, every analyst um, was sort of like marching along sort of a coherent QA strategy, whether it was in alignment with the web product or the mobile product? Like how do you actually um, resource a, a testing team that way? Yeah, good question. Well, so on the mobile side of things, really a lot of the exploratory work would be done on new feature testing. And I definitely felt the strain of that logistically, you know, for a white label program. It's like, oh, we've got dozens and dozens, upward of 100 apps to support that's only going to continue to grow. And so if you're testing a new feature, then to what extent are you actually going to give really strong regression coverage in an exploratory fashion over you know, the core features and, and structure of the app that we already have? So that was really kind of a pain spot for me. But And I think that's kind of the nature. It's kind of just the whole beast of being a white label program is you're just going to have to tackle that. To be honest, I never really tackled that really as well as I wanted to. But then on the full stack uh, web app side of things, as I mentioned, that was where um, it it was definitely a long-term multi-year evolution to get to that level of regression uh, nuance with multiple cycles inside of multiple categories. And also, I mean, we would also cycle the team for who would do uh, regression testing because it, it's, you know, it can still be a heavy lift. And so we had like, you know, a dozen people. And so it's like, hey, can, can we interrupt our teams less and help them to stay focused on what they're, you know, assigned to do, what they love to do. Most people want to look at the new stuff. It can get pretty boring, right? So it's like, oh, and, and to, to keep your vigilance up on regression testing, that is definitely a challenge. So we would kind of just build up a schedule of like four to six weeks and just kind of rotate through people so that basically about once a month, they're going to be on the horn to put a good, you know, half a day in on regression so that we can sign off and deploy and then they're back to uh, work as usual. Do you actually think it's going to be possible to get to a point where mobile automation testing frameworks are going to be as effective and, and efficient and easy to use as what you are using on for Cypress for, for web automation? Do you think we're going to get to that point with mobile? In a way, I feel like we have, but in a way, I feel like it's, it's, it's not sufficient and it probably never will be. And again, I have to say, I think that's one of the strong Advantages that you're bringing with mobile with your own driver, but then having that full stack, you know, capability, which is the fullest of stacks, right? Because it's all the way through the touch kit. Um, so you can't do any better than that. And because the reason, I guess one thing that we really haven't touched on that's unique in the mobile world is the tiers of devices, like device compatibility, OS version compatibility matrix is a beast compared to the web world, compared to, you know, yeah, I was doing desktop testing and then like web 1.0 testing, as you mentioned, you know, ages ago, decades ago. But in the mobile world, it's like, okay, a lot of people are going to support 
tier one and tier two of devices. And honestly, I would usually just let like browser stack define that for me and say, okay, guys, we're going to, we're going to do tier one, 50% of tier two and cycle through them, you know, alternate back and forth to kind of broaden your coverage. But very quickly, like if you go any deeper than that, the cost and time just becomes absolutely cost prohibitive. Hardly anybody does it unless you're huge, you know, like Facebook and Twitter or something. But the risk just grows and grows and grows as well, right? So I think the most practical reality is the vast majority of product owners and organizations out there just crowdsource to their users. Very few people actually care about device-specific bugs until someone like logs a ticket, like, please, I can't get the damn thing to work. Can you, can you do something about it? I mean, if they're a paying customer, boom, you got CSMs or whatever, and that's going to get rectified. But that is like, I really feel like the whole industry is just not sufficiently solved that. Because like the deeper you go, the more expensive it gets. And it's just how, how much discipline do you have to actually kind of chase that level of quality? And so... Uh, yeah, but so I love what you guys are offering in, in Mobot to be able to, to tackle that because it's really kind of untapped everywhere else, I think. Yeah, I think historically it has been so challenging to, you know, make sure you corral all of the right devices that match your demographic, your users, uh, your customers and, and how they're interacting with your mobile product. And I think you know, part of our thesis at Mobot is we think this is a problem that's going to get more exciting, more painful (laughs) to try to wrangle. Um, But I think that's also what's exciting is that uh, hardware is easier than ever for someone to build their own OS, for someone to build their own mobile phone. And right now it's iOS and Android. But you know, 10 years ago, um, it was Windows Mobile and BlackBerry were all the rage. And yeah. I kind of wonder, like, what is, what is the next five, 10 years going to look like? I think it's there's going to be more opportunity to test. Right. Who knows? Absolutely. You're set, that's such, such a great point. And I mean, a lot of people are going to presume that, oh, yeah, you know, over time, things are going to kind of solidify and it's going to get more stable. It's going to get a little bit easier you know, those are some of the ideas with like, yes, React Native is kind of taking over the world. What well, React is taking over the world. JavaScript's taking over the world, and that's fantastic. And there's a, but those are also a testimony that every couple of years, there's some new hotness, some new JavaScript framework comes up and just takes over everything. I love that you can write once and deploy to two platforms with React Native. That's great. You're also, you know, compromising on a number of other fronts, because you, you, you know, if you're going to have TypeScript that like compiles into React Native, which actually kind of compiles into C, and the security is just not there. It's just not well. It's, it's not robust. You know, it's still very, very young. And so that's great to kind of expect that a roadmap is going to solidify. But then look at what everyone's experience is with USB. Like now, people are pretty much used to USB C. But of course, you know, there was like a million products that were manufactured with those USB-A plugs, just assuming that nothing's ever going to change. And, you know, Apple will kind of force people's hands on all sorts of different new hardware standards. And a lot of people are like, no, okay, I understand it's better. But that's kind of like this, this problem. And then, like you're saying, like, before you know it, those old standards are just gone. So really, it's like, no, none of us can ever, like, you know, rest on our laurels. You know, we got to stay on our toes the whole time. I guess final question for me is, 
What do you think a testing professional can do, an engineering professional can do to stay ahead of all of these evolving technologies, these frameworks? There's more different automation tools coming out all the time. Like in your experience, what would you recommend uh, for our audience to kind of, you know, stay agile? That is a great question. I wish I had a really good answer because I can't think of anything better than just do your best to stay abreast but also probably know where you're going or where you're wanting to go. I think there's probably some room for some of us to be kind of jack of all trade generalists. But over time, like for example, I mean, the cloud, I was up in Seattle for 24 years. I saw the cloud like mature, but I was doing mobile (laughs) the whole time, you know? So like, I am not a cloud expert. Um, I mean, I don't even know if I'm a mobile expert, but Technology is just too big to take on everything and to be an expert or to be, you know, just to have like the bleeding edge skills and to do the things that are the most in demand. So I think chances are, as you progress, you're going to kind of find your niche. It might be web, might be cloud, might be mobile, might be whatever, might be games. And they kind of each come with their own little dynamics and stuff. And so that's going to continue to change, but at least it's manageable. Staying up to date is kind of manageable. But if you're resisting that, I don't know, I guess I might ask why. I mean, it might kind of, if you're looking for a job and you're like, oh man, they always need all these cloud technologies, but then you're looking for another job and oh man, they need to have some like strong mobile experience. Like, well, I mean, that's just kind of what people do. I and mean, the specialization, um, it ain't just for the insects. I think it's kind of for us as well. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited. I think in the next few years, the way we think about test case management, test case design, automation, um, you know, physical testing, when humans should play a role in the testing process, I think you know, there's so many great tools and solutions that are coming onto the market as our OS, different OS versions and Apple and Android are evolving too. And I'm just kind of you know, along for the ride and really excited to see what comes next because I think more than ever before, there's just new ideas and just like a lot of fresh innovation coming out. I think in the first, in the last decade, for a while, there wasn't a lot going on in the testing space. Um, I think there were a couple of big players in testing solutions, but I think I'm hearing about new opportunities and new ideas all the time. And especially with what's been coming out with like GPT, you know, I, I'm, I'm yeah. curious to see how that will impact our industry and, and make testing easier for, you know, automation and manual testing. Yeah, same here. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jacob, for taking the time to join me on our podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and just kind of learning more about how your team and the processes that you built at Spring Big and just throughout your career. I think it's, you know, you have a long and very fruitful career and, you know, I'm sure much more to come. But yeah, I was really appreciated you sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Team Mobot. That's T-E-A-M-M-O-B-O-T. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.